So without a doubt, leadership, I can promise people one thing. It's not popular, but when you have to make a tough decision, get on your knees. As I've always said, praying and playing football is the same. Bend your knees, keep your head and eyes up, look upward, and without a doubt, pray and ask the Lord for guidance. I don't know how anyone would be able to move in a uh, leadership position without prayer, because there's power in prayer. But if you and I are doing the work of God, we have no reason to fear. That doesn't mean opposition won't make us afraid. It means our fear is grounded in our Lord. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, and I am here with Michael Easley. Good morning, Dad. Good morning. Great to see you. Always good to see you, too. Aww. (laughs) Well, last week we posted a free leadership download. You can access it at michaelincontext.com slash leadership process. We will be adding additional resources throughout the series on that page. Again, michaelincontext.com slash leadership process. But is, that the, a, is that a slash backslash or a forward slash? Or I, I guess technically it's a forward slash, okay. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's just the average slash, guys. You can do it. I believe in you. Hey, speaking of, if you listen to Michael in Context on the iTunes podcast app, it would be so helpful to us if you scroll to the bottom and you'll see it will say rate and review this. You can give us five stars. Hopefully you think it's a five-star podcast if you're listening to us <laughs> continually. And and write some comments. This one, it's so nice for us to get feedback from you if you drop us a note saying what you love about it, what you love to see in the future. But ratings are huge for the iTunes chart and for when they suggest to other folks, hey, you should listen to this. It's similar to something you're already listening to. Um, They base those on rates and reviews. And so anyway, that would be a huge help to us. We'd really appreciate it. But back to you knowing how to do a slash on a website address. (laughs) I have to think every time I have to go, which which one do I use? Oh, there it is on the keyboard. It's a classic one, guys. Sorry, I'm old. Anyway, we have a list, 21 factors from Donald K. Campbell about Nehemiah, the man in charge. And I just think it's a helpful tool to print off and keep near your computer, on your desk, somewhere that you see it. And just some nice prompts about, man, am I doing this? Am I doing this in the way that I'm leading others and um, focusing on the tasks at hand that I need to accomplish this week? So anyway, again, we've been enjoying this Nehemiah series so much. I hope you have been too. Dad, where are we headed today in chapter four? Nehemiah four is a fascinating account. In some ways, it's surprising, yet it should not be surprising. He's going to face his stiffest opposition yet in the book. And it causes all of us to take a step back and lean back in our seat and say, why do we always face opposition? Mm. 
and it seems as though the best laid plans of mice and men, whether you're a pastor, an educator in, in the medical field, whether you're a, a homemaker raising kids, a parent that primarily is at home with children all day long, no matter what your role is, if you're a soccer coach, yeah. if you got a plan, somebody is going to oppose it. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know why we think we can anticipate every contingency or anticipate all the what-ifs, but this chapter comes back to a theological grid. This is a plan to rebuild the wall that enabled Israel to worship the place and the name where God had established himself for Israel, and they're going to face ridicule, anger, and opposition. It's a good reminder we should not be surprised when opposition comes as we look at this historical account of how God's people found opposition doing what he wanted them to do. Why does opposition come as a surprise? Whether it's an idea at work, a plan, a new way of trying something, even if it's God's work, it seems like someone always opposes a plan. Whether we're young or old, we must realize we will face opposition. Now, that doesn't minimize the hurt, the aggravation. It shouldn't be this way, the feelings we might have. But it is important to know that you will face opposition. So why don't you just tell yourself out loud, I will face opposition. Say it like three or four times. I will face opposition. Now, unlike Nehemiah, we may not be 100% certain that the thing we're doing or want to do, is in fact something God wants us to do. That's an important difference to keep in mind, right? But if we have a plan that ultimately is faithful, is one that's serving him, that's one about bringing glory to God, that somehow we think our leadership, our influence, is enhancing our walk with Christ, helping others to mature, we would hope that plan would go unopposed. You can say the same thing with your marriage or your parenting or your friends who don't know Christ. If we have this idea, this thing, this plan that we want to help others, we're going to have to learn how to press through opposition. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 4 to 7 in whole deal with opposition. And for this episode, we're looking at Nehemiah 4 to see how God's man responds to the opposition. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Nehemiah, now it came about when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said to him, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break down their stone wall. This ridicule comes right away. As soon as we read the framework of chapter 3, how the high priests were building the sheep gate and the bow is tied on chapter 3, verse 32, the sheep gate was framed out and now they're ready for these repairs to take place around the wall. The enemies come up very quickly. The enemy's ploy here is anger and mockery. Anger literally means to become hot. Uh, his nose becomes hot. It says a lot. The threats and humiliation are very effective weapons in the war of words. 
to rattle the scabbards, to raise anxiety among the people. They mocked the Jews. They mocked their plan. They mocked their materials. Are they feeble, these people? Can they finish in a day the plan? The materials, it's dusty rubble. A fox could break it down. Now from these three verses, we learn Sanballat and Tobiah, along with other allies, very powerful, form a complete geographic threat from the north, south, east, and west. In other words, all sides of Jerusalem has enemies around it. Sanballat throws five questions to taunt the Jews and discourage their efforts. Verse 2 again, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones? Each of them is a pointed question, but let me unpack the third one. Can they offer sacrifices? Interesting that even the enemy understood the rebuilding of this wall complex wasn't just to protect a fortified city. It was enabled to protect them to offer worship to God. Again, Derek Kidner writes, the point of will they sacrifice is probably something like, are the fanatics going to pray that wall back together? (laughs) Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones? It's hard for us to imagine, but actually, when a city is burned with fire, large stones actually crack and fissure into smaller pieces. Tobias comment, this small nocturnal fox could crawl up on a wall and cause damage to their flimsy repair efforts. So ridicule, threat, instigation, a propaganda campaign. Nehemiah's response, he prays. Verses 4 and 5, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their approach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. Now, when we read something like this in the Bible, this is technically called imprecation, imprecatory. Uh, The Psalms are full of imprecation. Psalm 55, 69, 79 have imprecations. It's asking God to bring retribution on an enemy. So let's take a, a bit of a pause and ask and answer the question, how does a person of faith, how does a believer in Christ understand a prayer like this? Now, Nehemiah did not act to inflict vengeance or retribution. He didn't take up a sword. He didn't go after his enemies, but he's praying to the righteous God of heaven, to the righteous judge of heaven to act, to intervene. Sanballat and company are the ones who are opposing God, opposing God's people and opposing Nehemiah's plan. So these are enemies of God's people, enemies of God's land, enemies of God. God had already given judgment toward Israel's enemies. We're not talking about law-abiding, peace-loving, non-religious peoples who happen to live around Israel. We're talking about people who hated Yahweh, who hated the Jew, and wanted them exterminated. To frame up this imprecation discussion for a moment, Nehemiah prays in accordance with Scripture. Let me give you two references while there are many. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we read in the so-called Abrahamic covenant blessing, the unilateral covenant God made with Abram. Verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families 
of the earth will be blessed. God pronounced from the beginning of the Jewish people that those who fought against God's people, those who cursed them, would in turn find retribution. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 3, same reference, just coincidentally, Jeremiah's prayer, But you know me, O Lord, you see me, and you examine my heart and attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for a day of carnage. Prayers like this are certainly unusual, maybe hard for some people to embrace, but the idea of imprecation was asking God to bring judgment. It's also important to remember that we are not talking about taking this opposition into our own hands. We learn from Nehemiah, let's take a look at what you do. So as a sidebar lesson, um, when evil comes, when evil opposes you, when evil opposes a good plan, um, there may be a time when you pray for God's retribution. I would not say it's the first step, but certainly in Nehemiah's situation, these were enemies who were willing to kill him and kill his people to stop this uh, wall from being rebuilt. Well, the building continues, nevertheless, chapter 4, verse 6. So he built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together half its height, for the people had a mind to work. It's one of those quick verses, and we stop and pause, coming off the heels of opposition, mockery, hate, threats, fear-mongering, imprecation, God, will you deal with the enemy? Oh, let's insert an update. The wall's half done, half height, because the people had a mind to work. It's interesting when people get behind a project, how, how many hands make light work. One of the great parts of doing something is a, a group of people, a body of Christ, a service project. When we go and do it, it's amazing how quickly a big project becomes small. And that simple, sturdy statement that makes Sanballat and company seem so small. Verse 7, now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard, the repair of the wall of Jerusalem went on, and the breaches began to close. They were very angry, and all of them conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. The call to arms happens quickly. And these two verses, these groups join an alliance. The Ashdodites are a new increasing hostility for Jerusalem. It's an interesting and impressive alliance, but it doesn't strike a blow. Perhaps the king's letters are the determent. Perhaps Yahweh protects them. Perhaps both are working. But in verse 9, Nehemiah is true to form. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Interesting. The walls half height. Enemies surrounding them are all aligning. They're going to come after Nehemiah and destroy his people in the wall. And we have this small interjection. But we pray to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard. You hear the old bad joke about the guys, the, they're out in the boat, and the boat's sinking. One guy is praying feverishly that God will stop the sinking of the boat and save him. The other guy's bailing water like crazy, saying, why don't you pray and bail? Uh, there's a little sense of that here. They're, they're praying to God, but they're also, we might say, being wise. They're setting up a guard against them day and night. Now, this is not a romantic victory. In fact, the fear grows. Verse 10, thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves 
are unable to rebuild the wall. So Judah, which would be, remember Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. So their southern neighbors, who by the way are their brothers, say, well, they're failing. There's rubbish. They're unable to do it. Verse 11, our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come upon them and kill them and put a stop to the work. And then verse 12, let's call this the locals say, when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against you from every place where you may turn. Nehemiah continues, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose. I spoke to the nobles, to the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, for your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall were those who carried the burdens, took their load, one hand doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeters stood near me. I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears into dawn until the stars appeared. At that time I said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. We each took his weapon even to the water. You know, I don't think it's an unwillingness for people to work when they begin to doubt their ability to complete a task. It's natural at some halfway point, at some midway point in a plan. We can tire, and then if opposition comes, it causes our hearts to sink. Nehemiah's solution is great. It's simple, it's clear, and it's good. He stations armed guards. Intimidations and threats might just be words, but they might also open up an opportunity for the enemy to cause great harm. Nehemiah's exhortation to the Jew is also noteworthy. He wants to dispel their fear. Why? Because the Lord is the only one to fear. Uh, He adds an emotional ownership of the duty. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He'll fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. The emphasis on this being our God, not merely some spiritual entity. Well, the call to arms for the workers is unique in scripture and a lot of us have heard the phrase sword and trowel that in the one hand they had their sword on their hip on the other hand they had the trowel that they came to work 
and the lull is now back to work. Look, there's a thread out there. We're halfway on the height of the wall. The point is, we better get to work. We better get to rebuilding the wall. The trumpeters that are stationed, it might be interesting for you to know, is the literal word for shofar. And the shofar, of course, was a ram's horn that uh, was blown in a trumpet fashion and could be heard at great distances. Nehemiah is taking human precautions, but he's reminding the Jews, verse 20, our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah leads by example. He's down there working with them on these long shifts. He's staying on site. He's not somewhere back uh, safely behind guard. He's right there with the people, uh, venturing out uh, morning and evening, just like the rest of them, keeping an eye on the potential opposition and keeping a hand to the work. Well, let's think about three lessons from Nehemiah chapter 4. Number one, don't be surprised when you encounter various trials. We know the passage perhaps too well in James chapter 1, verses 2 and following. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You know, trials come in lots of ways, pain, conflict, uh, health issues, financial challenges, opposition from uh, co-workers, from our husband, our wife, our kids. There's thousands of ways we're going to face opposition. What I find fascinating about the passage in James is we miss, I would argue, the most important part of these verses. We read, consider it all joy when we have trials. But that's not what the verse is saying. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result not to get too technical grammatically but what james is saying here is when you go through the trial you're going to learn endurance that endurance comes by your faith and as you endure faithfully the result is a perfection a completeness the word perfect there doesn't mean perfect in that nothing's wrong. It means a full, comprehensive, complete result. And that's joy. Or to say it another way, when you go through the trial, endure it faithfully. And in that you will find joy. How often do we hear someone glibly tell us, oh, you know, smile at the trouble, smile at the trial. No, I would tell you, smile at the endurance. Because as you endure the trial, you and I learn and grow and our faith in Christ grows. And therefore, don't be surprised when these trials come. It's how we face them, when you encounter them. I find it interesting that God did not do a class A miracle here for Nehemiah. In other words, there was no plague. There was no parting of the Red Sea. There was no sun standing still. The enemies weren't swallowed up in some great fissure in the land. It was Nehemiah's planning and prayer. Does that seem like like not as spiritual to you? I mean, wouldn't it be great for God to have just come and destroyed Sanballat and company? I often say, don't ask God merely for a miracle, but ask him for an immovable faith. The problem with miracles, if I can be so brash to say it, is that if I get a miracle, I need another one. I need God to come through in miraculous ways. Faith is confident assurance in God without seeing the end or seeing the outcome. 
confident hope and assurance in what he said he's going to do. So ask God, not merely for a miracle, but ask him for an immovable faith. Sure, if you want to ask for a miracle, ask for it. But if you don't get that miracle, what does that do to your faith? But if you ask him for an immovable faith, no matter what the outcome is, you're trusting him. Because you and I will face opposition, we will face trials, we will not be exempt. Or to say it really simply, bail and pray. Secondly, Sanballat's five questions or accusations to me are a bit interesting to study. Remember what he says, what do you think you're doing? You can't do that by yourself. Uh, they can't offer sacrifices to get this done. Who do they think they are? They're going to finish that in the day. Can they revive stones? In other words, can they put back these stones that have been destroyed by fire? If if we were to sum these up, aren't these sort of the ways Christians respond to us sometimes or even the way we think about other people's plans? You can't get that done. You don't have the resources. Who do you think you are? Well, we can huff and puff and blow your house over. But these actually reveal a lot about our attitude and why we do these things. They can certainly challenge us and make us fearful and discourage us. But if you and I are doing the work of God, we have no reason to fear. That doesn't mean opposition won't make us afraid. It means our fear is grounded in our Lord, respecting him, worshiping him. We're trying to rebuild a wall in order to conduct worship in the way God intended. Not to keep people out simply, or to keep people in simply, but to enable God's people to worship him. And the third lesson is when opposition comes, three things we can, quote, do. Number one, we can pray. Number two, we can take precaution. And number three, we persist. And that formula works for most of life, doesn't it? When the problem comes, pray. A friend of mine in Texas used to say, why pray when I can worry? (laughs) We're so prone to what if and running a thousand directions. When was the last time you and I just stopped, dropped to our knees, got no place to go, Lord, don't know what to do. I don't have the resources. I'm afraid of this opposition. I'm afraid of these accusations. I'm afraid of my reputation being hurt and soiled. I don't have the resources to fix this. Prayer is dependence on God, not partial, but total. So when opposition comes, one, pray. Secondly, take precautions. Uh, Don't be stupid. Don't be uh, lazy, lackadaisical. Don't be indolent, but bail. Uh, Do what you can do. Get to work. Show up every day. I remember one chapter in my life, incredible opposition came, and I determined every day I would get up, uh, shave, shower, put on my suit, and go to work no matter what. I I made the decision I was not going to let opposition and rumor uh, affect the way I conducted myself. And interestingly, imperceptibly, over time, uh, many people who came to me and said, you know, I watched you during that time, and you just seemed to keep on going. Well, that's no pat on the back. That's, to me, faithfulness. And that's saying you take precautions and you persist. Pray. Take precautions and persist. Opposition is going to come, my friend. I don't like it any more than you. But being aware that it's going to come, praying, taking precaution, persisting in our work and our faithfulness, that's what God has asked you and me to do as leaders and simply as disciples of Christ.
Well, Dad, obviously the bulk of chapter four is talking about this idea that leaders are going to face opposition. And you had two really great conversations with Dave Ramsey and Janet Parshall that we shared earlier in the series about their own experiences and facing opposition and Ramsey talking about, you need to expect it. You're you're going yeah. to face it, Janet said. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, but you also have certainly experience opposition. Maybe folks don't think pastors and folks in ministry experience opposition as leaders, but you do. You know, I've never had anyone oppose me in oh, 37 really? years. Nah, <laughs> walking apart, baby. I think it was Dave who said, if you don't have opposition, you're probably not doing anything. Yeah. So there is that angle. Um, one story that will always stand out. I was speaking to a very large group of very important people. I have to preface this. I did not know my audience or the context. Mm-hmm. And I taught this passage out of Second mm-hmm. Timothy. And I made a very specific application to, uh, let's just say, someone who is not what we would call an orthodox teacher. Okay. So I leave this group of four or 500 people. I go about my business. I get a phone call from uh, a friend that says, you need to come back. This conference was going on for several days. You need to come back and apologize to this conference. Wow. And I said, okay. And he and another person were on this conference call telling me how I had offended these people and so forth and so on. And so um, due to my schedule, it was going to be another day before I got back there. So I'm stewing for Hmm. two days going, A, I didn't do anything wrong. B, um, I think the passage is still accurate. C, my illustration was right. Uh So I'm churning and churning and churning and rehearsing in my mind as I'm driving back to this conference. I got in front of this group. I said, uh, I've heard that there's been a little buzz about what this idiot pointing to myself said (laughs) and you know i said there's two kinds of apologies there's the apology that where you say if i offended anyone Mm. which isn't an apology right and the other kind of apology is i was wrong and then i looked at him i said neither apply this is what the passage says this is what i said about the passage Mm -hmm. and i'll stand here and take questions what this person is doing is wrong Mm. it's not orthodox it's false teaching mm-hmm. well wasn't what the people who had invited me back to say wanted me to say sure interestingly fast forward i get a phone call from another person i never met who was over a national ministry he called me on the carpet again and i rehearsed it to him long pause and he said you're right wow so I'm not saying, you know, bravado and being bulldogmatic is always the right thing. But there is a time when if you have the right facts, the right information, Mm -hmm. the truth always stands strong. And people want to be uh, politically correct. And and certainly we want to be kind and truthful. But this wasn't an issue of being unkind. It was calling something wrong that Mm -hmm. was wrong. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think one lesson I've learned over the years, you don't play that card often. Right. But if there is a situation where you're opposed, you're pushed back upon, and you know, wait a minute, this is right. It's right before God, right before man. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. Then you need to have the courage, the tenacity to say, I'm sorry. I disagree. This is wrong. I'm not mad at you. Right. But we're going this direction. Yeah. Fast forward even further, some five, six years later, having a dinner, and one of the principals in that meeting who I had really didn't know and I didn't connect the story to relayed this whole story 
to this dinner group of about six people. <laughs> and he was the one I was talking to on the phone all those years ago. Wow. And he said, Michael was right and we were wrong. Wow. Yeah. So that doesn't happen very often. It's probably the only time it ever happened. <laughs> the one time in your whole life. <laughs> but, probably. But there is a principle. And somewhere deep in the fiber of a leader, uh, a man or woman has to know, am I doing the right thing in the right way and then go home? Yeah. That's good. Well, I think something that is similar to great leaders are going to face opposition when looking at the leadership process, great leaders have to make tough decisions. And you had a fun conversation with coach Les Steckel. We've shared some pieces of your conversation with him in previous episodes up to this point, but Coach Steckel had some great thoughts on how he goes about making a tough decision, specifically in his former role as the president of FCA. Let's listen in. But really what's been difficult for me over the last 12 years being president and CEO is to come into a nationally known, now international ministry and have to make some hard decisions. And I know I've been with my executive team and my 12 vice presidents that handle not only the 12 regions in the United States, but outside in the globe. And I've asked them, um, how many of you guys enjoy conflict? (laughs) If you do, raise your hand because I'd be interested in getting to know you better. And not one hand went up. And I've always believed that, you know, as a head coach, as a Marine colonel, as a president CEO, the one thing that I know for sure is that leadership is not a popular position because you have to make tough decisions. And a lot of times people want to go into a leadership role and make sure that they're popular along with their decisions. And when they do, they forget about the Holy Spirit. When they're Christians, they can call on the good Lord. Jesus will give them direction. The Holy Spirit's right there. And I've always said, let peace be your umpire. And when you make a decision and you feel peaceful about it, I believe it's the right one because when you go to the Lord in prayer, he'll give you that peace after you've made that difficult decision. So without a doubt, leadership, I can promise people one thing. It's not popular, but when you have to make a tough decision, get on your knees. As I've always said, praying and playing football is the same. Bend your knees, keep your head and eyes up, look (laughs) upward, and without a doubt, pray and ask the Lord for guidance. And when you do and you feel peace, that's the right decision. In some of those tough decisions you've made, and, and let's just say you've had that peace and you, it's the right decision. I, I usually ask him to do the right thing in the right way and go home because it's always going to be there tomorrow, right? But there's still angst sometimes. You make some tough calls, you have to fire people, mm-hmm. have to give them a poor evaluation. They yeah. don't like it. All those things happen. So help us a little more with that tough decision. Well, you know, leadership is tough. I mean, there are positions where you train people. And then there are people that have to be transferred, if you will. And then some are having to be terminated. And, you know, when you sit in the, uh, people call it the ivory tower, I've always believed in getting in the trenches with the troops and getting as much information as possible. And as a leader, you have to truly listen and then learn from it and hear the hearts of your people and go forward. And when you collect as much data as you can to make that tough decision, it's good. You know, I think about coaching, uh, and every Sunday uh, before a ball game, 
you know, I knew that I came into the meeting the prior Monday, and I said to the offensive staff, okay, guys, we got the Raiders this week. How are we going to beat the Oakland Raiders? I need your input. I need your suggestions. Know this. I'm going to listen to everything you say. And as you've seen in the past, I'm probably going to go with it. But there can be things I don't choose. So don't be offended this week. Maybe next week I'll go with your ideas. I have to make those decisions because it falls on me. And without a doubt, when I bring a group of people in to help and get a consensus on things, it helps me be in that peaceful, contented leader. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, do the right thing in the right way and go home. Um, For a long time, I had this mantra of do the right thing. Yeah. But there's the right thing, and as important is the right way, because you can do it at the wrong time, the wrong place. You can be angry. Um, and then the piece I added for my own consolation is go home mm. <laughs> because the problems will always be there tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I've had to let people go. I've had to go into meetings that were very controversial. Every leader does. It's sure. not unique. Um, so handling yourself in those things, and, and we're human beings. We're emotional. We get mad. Our feelings get worked up. We get yeah. ginned up. But at the end of the day, for me, the solace is um, this is about God's word. God's spirit and God's people. That's always to me the the three legs of the stool. Hmm. And somehow in that decision-making process, am I honoring God's word? Am I at least submissive to and have some sense, and I know this is very subjective, some sense that I'm being controlled by God's spirit, not my own emotions or anger or or wisdom or I think I'm smart. Mm -hmm. And then God's people, other Mm -hmm. people around me to say, yeah, this is hard to let this person go. This is hard to make this realignment. This is a hard budget cut. Um, sometimes it's clear cut. Sometimes you have a person who's intractable, a gossip, or whatever. But when you're leading people, you're always keeping in mind, these are God's people. He loves them just as much yeah. as uh, he loves you and me. So keeping that in mind, and I think we are from Dave on a prior remark, um, you treat people the way you'd like to be treated mm. when you're let go or when you're confronted sure. or reprimanded. And so we're not better than others. Right. We're just put in this place. And somebody has to make the decision. That's where I believe groupthink and consensus building is a disservice in general mm-hmm. to leadership. Mm-hmm. Because even if you work all those parts and pieces, someone's got to say, we're going to build this. We're going that direction. We're not going to spend this money. We are going to spend that money. And that typically comes down to one person Mm -hmm. who can make that tough decision. Yep. So we've talked about facing opposition, making tough decisions as part of leadership process. And then the third and last thing that I just want to mention really briefly on this episode is that great leaders pray. (laughs) And it may sound cliche, but we see that in chapter four of Nehemiah. We see it actually in several chapters of Nehemiah where he takes a time out, he stops and prays. Um, Talk about that. I mean, again, I think it sounds, of course, we should be praying. and But I think most American Christians, A, really struggle with prayer. And B, how should we be integrating that into secular leadership roles that we're taking on? You're exactly right. And we've been all been in small groups where I often joke about there's 15 synonyms that people use when they pray. <laughs> and it's just really uh, happens to be the transitional adjectives. We just really, we just really. Um, and I don't mean to demean, but I, I do think we're having a conversation with the God of the universe. Why in the mm-hmm. world do we use cliche, trite prayers? Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard Hendricks often said our, our dependence on prayer is not partial but total. Mm. 
we don't live that way. And we think about the Puritans or the silver-haired widowed woman who's so godly she prays for hours every day. Um, and those are those are good reminders. But somewhere, I think, frankly, we're proud. Mm-hmm. We don't need God. We use our own strengths, our own skill sets, our own resources. We might take uh, Nehemiah's comment out of context. I consulted with myself. You know, <laughs> we think we know how to do this. A prayer is dependence upon God. I find it striking that Jesus Christ spent the night in prayer before he picked the disciples. Hmm. I find it striking that before all of his major crises or traumas, whether it was Gethsemane, yeah. he's going to spend the time to be alone with the Lord. After the longest recorded day of ministry in the Gospels, he sneaks away, not to take a nap, but to go up into the mountains to be alone with his father, and the disciples come looking for him. So we've, we've got the pattern. We've got the, there's a process. These were great leaders. Mm-hmm. The Psalms, Davidic Psalms, prayer, theology, song, all put together. The Psalms are his record of these long prayers. Yeah. Some are praise, some are petition, some are lament, yeah. some are occasional songs. And to think about the language, you and I both been in a small group where I had the whole group use Ken Boa's little book, Handbook yeah. to Prayer. It's a 90 day, pick it up at any point, pray through it. You can do it in five to 20 minutes. Yep. And it's scripture. It's, it's categorized along the lines of adoration, mm-hmm. confession, thanksgiving supplication worship uh he's got great categories all bringing the bible in very simple paint by numbers but i ask our groups to do it every day for 90 days Mm -hmm. to get them out of the habit of these cliche trite prayers and it is a discipline and it's a relationship that's what i'd say finally so in a secular market if you're not working around a group of believers all the more perhaps Mm -hmm. that you need to be alone with the lord even if it's you know, a little time in the morning, don't guilt yourself into thinking, oh, I got to pray four hours a day like yeah. Luther did. Why don't you pray when you start to worry? Just yeah. stop and say, God, I need your help. Read a psalm, read a passage out of Ken Boa's book. Do something that recalibrates your heart and mind and say, I am not partially dependent on you. I'm totally dependent on you. Yeah. And I'm leading your people, even in a secular organization, you're leading people made in his image. Yeah. Was it Luther or Moody who said, my day is so busy that I have to spend four hours in the morning in prayer? Yeah, I believe it was Luther, one of those anecdotes that takes life of his own. But he talks <laughs> about how his day begins so early, and the comment was, but before that, I spend four hours. There's a great book by E.M. Bounds, and it's been packaged differently, but it's power through prayer or purpose through prayer, and sometimes they put the two books together. But he tells a story about a man named William Sangster who wore uh, grooves in the hardwood floor (laughs) beside his desk where he knelt so often. I think it was Tozer who took off his his suit coat and put on a jumpsuit and laid prostrate on the ground when he prayed in his pastoral office. So not not to martyrize or to say we've got to be like these characters of history, but I do think because we're so smart, we're self-confident, we're secure, we're with it, we're up to date, we got the internet, um, we can figure it out, we're cool, we put prayer aside. Yeah. And all you have to do is listen to people who pray in a group. I think it was Spurgeon who said, most people's prayers need to be cut in half 
and set on fire on both ends or something like that. It's the idea that we pray these long, verbose prayers in public, but pray very poorly in private. Mm. And it goes back to your relationship to Christ. Do you really need him and depend upon him, or do you just run to him when you have an insoluble problem and you need him to help? Yeah. Well, Dr. Susan West, who is the VP and Chief of Staff at Belmont University, had some thoughts on this and her discipline of waking up every morning and spending time in prayer before even beginning the workday and the list of to-dos. So let's listen in. One of my professors was a master of sayings, and he, he would talk about prayer. And he, he said that the problem with prayer is we don't understand our need is not partial. Our need is total. Right. How do you incorporate praying and being diligent about that as a leader? Well, my day started at 445 in the morning because I know if I don't touch base with the commander-in-chief, my day pretty much could go. I mean, it's going to go whatever way that it goes. But if I touch base with the commander-in-chief and I understand that uh, we're in partnership with this thing and that no matter what happens during the day, uh, it's nothing that uh, nothing will happen that he can't, you know, help me through. And then, you know, no one can keep you from praying even in a meeting. I mean, we can say silent prayers. You know, I pray without ceasing, Michael, to be honest with you. <laughs> I have to in this position because it could be all-consuming if I allowed it to. Uh, if I forgot uh, rank and order and didn't realize who I was working for, it, it could be sometimes be all-consuming and even overwhelming. So I incorporate prayer in every aspect of my work. I don't know how anyone would be able to move in a uh, leadership position without prayer because there's power in prayer. Well, I love that last line. Susan says, I don't know how anyone would be able to move in a leadership position without prayer. (laughs) And I mean, we so undervalue prayer. And I think if nothing else, kind of echoing what she said, the first thing in the morning, touching base with the commander in chief, you're, you're being reminded of who is completely in control and who you and I ultimately serve, who we work for. And we go back to the beginning of Nehemiah. When he hears the news, he prays, he prays this incredible prayer. And undoubtedly that's a synthesis of the four months Hmm. before he's going to speak to Artaxerxes about his request. Well, if you are interested in checking out the Handbook to Prayer by Kim Boa, we have put that link up on our website. And again, you can go to michaelincontext.com slash, that would be a forward slash, (laughs) forward slash leadership process. And that will be linked there as well as the PDF that we put up last week, Donald K. Campbell's 21 Factors, looking at Nehemiah, a man in charge. But I can't recommend that book enough. I actually just picked it back up and started utilizing again in my mornings. Talk about the struggle to pray. I mean, it, I can maybe pray for five minutes. And then when I'm using Boa's book, I can pray for half an hour. It is so helpful, guided, great scripture included. Uh, so anyway, highly encourage you to check that out. Thanks for joining us. And we will be back next Tuesday. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? 
you can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.